from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to and watching the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 146 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, and must I must say you're looking good. I, I feel like I'm looking good right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I might decide... I might decide halfway through this to to go and do the outfit change, you know. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The wardrobe change, like the Academy Awards, so they change at every commercial. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you know, it's for maybe this intro portion. I will kind of stick towards this look that I'm currently uh, rocking, and then once we get into the real meat and potatoes, the the question and answer, and then I'm going to make sure that I have a nice outfit change for that. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll I'll change too, but it'll be something subtle. We'll see if the listeners um, or the viewers can uh, figure it out. And yes, if you're listening to the audio portion of this podcast, we are actually um, videoing this this segment. Craig, do you want to talk a little about why we're doing that? Uh, well, we're doing it because. One of the things that has been great to come out of this entire kind of stay at home procedures that we've all been following is that uh, we've really tried to make strides in order to be able to do all of our shows on the Dis Unplugged that we can via video. And uh, luckily enough, the, the program that we're using to do it all utilizes Skype. And Michael and I have been using Skype to do connecting with Walt for years. And uh, we record our own audio separately. I record the conversation so I know how to sync it up. And then I do all the post-production on it. And that's just how we've been doing it. So uh, now that we we have this video program that records our Skype calls and such, I figured, you know what? Why not? Why not try this with connecting with Walt? Where is the harm in, in bringing connecting with Walt to video? That being said, this is not an every week type of thing. Uh, if mm -hmm. You watch our show. Well, listen to our show. Sorry. You know that sometimes our shows can get very, very long and uh, they, it would be nearly impossible. But even beyond that, we're a history podcast. And a lot of times the the subjects we're talking about in terms of video, it would we need the benefit of having photos and other visuals to really make it interesting. Yeah, you could just watch mm -hmm watch us read and and kind of have our little back and forth, but it's not as interesting. So we're not going to do it every week, but we figured for something like this episode, a question and answer, uh, it's perfect for for video because we're not 
we don't need visuals with it anyways. We don't have anything to present. I mean, I'm sure we could find one or two things here and there. But in the long run, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it's it, these question and answers are really a conversation back and forth between Michael and I. So we're just inviting inviting you into the conversation. And I'm just going to get it out of the we made all the jokes at the beginning, but our recording got screwed up for the intro. And so <laughs> that's why the change of clothes. I did not notice it until the day before our release. And so uh, we're, we're doing this kind of last second, but it's still very important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we hope you enjoy it, this little experiment of ours. We'll, and we will do it on, you know, a spattering of future episodes if this works out. But yeah, like Craig said, it, it won't be every week and all that. So, um, but this is fun. So anyway, so we, we hope you enjoy it. So, um, well, you know, a, a few things that have happened. Of course, May the 4th, uh, you know, at the beginning of the week. You know, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, no. I was just gonna say, I'm I'm Star Wars out. I had, oh, yeah. I got way too much Star Wars, and I think the uh, kicker for me was watching the the holiday special. Then I knew I was like, okay, oh yeah, too much Star Wars. I ended up watching Star Trek. <laughs> that I've been binge watching the original series, but Disney Plus launched. Uh, Disney Gallery Star Wars The Mandalorian and I did watch that and I enjoyed it I like the behind the scenes things and hearing how things were um, you know made and all that I th- this didn't go into a lot of detail about what the directors do and how they did it and stuff like that this was more like um, meet the directors exactly it was uh, very it was I don't want to call it a fluff piece in terms of like a, a Blu-ray or DVD special feature. It, it definitely was interesting because uh, they did they went they went in depth on the people that made the Mandalorian actually come to life, and they deserved it because the series mm-hmm. was fantastic. They deserve all the credit. My only issue with it is that it was more like meet Dave Filoni and Taika Waititi, and then we'll briefly mention the rest of them and and make sure that you know that they worked on it but dave filoni was the mastermind of all these star wars series and is is definitely holding the torch as it moves forward and taika watiti is also the future which after after they debuted that episode then it wasn't too long after that they announced that taika was officially confirmed to to be directing a new star wars movie so it just mm-hmm. it all feels like it was just worked out perfectly there it did it was that disney magic but but um yeah i agree with you i th- i loved hearing dave filoni's uh you know story as to how he got the job and how he thought it was a prank (laughs) when he got the call but i love his enthusiasm i do think the one director that got short shrift i guess was um bryce dallas howard uh they didn't go a lot into what she did and i know a lot of people they enjoyed what she directed they enjoyed her episodes a lot because they felt that they felt there was a lot of um character development and human interaction in her episodes. And um, so I was a little surprised she didn't get as much um, airtime. Yeah, I I thought, you know, again, going back to what I just said there, obviously John Favreau and, and <laughs> Dave Filoni and Taika are important, but I thought the other three just didn't really get enough. And like, 
Bryce Dallas, yeah, they gave her a little bit of her due, but like even with when they, you know, they they opened it up so that she could direct. Of course, her father has been directing for years, and mm-hmm. and she's been around him, and even like they they synced it all up together. She directed the the episode that was, you know, in the same vein as Seventh Samurai, a Bugs, a Bugs Life, whatever whatever version of that story that you want to consider it, you know, they, they gave that one to her, which was ended up being strange because her, she flew to Tokyo one time with Ron Howard. And did she say George Lucas too? And they had dinner with Kurosawa. Well, yeah, I think, well, she said that her father had to go to Japan to meet with George Lucas and Kurosawa. And, um, she was like six years old or something. And I guess, you know, he felt he wasn't going to leave her all the time with her mother. Cause you know, that there's boys too, I guess. And they, you know, he felt he'd done that too much because of his job. So he thought he'd take her t- with him. And she apparently fell asleep, like on his shoulder or chest at this dinner with, with George Lucas and, and Kurosawa. And can you, I'm sh- Looking back, I'm sure she regrets it, but I don't know how much a six-year-old would take in a whole lot of that conversation. Oh yeah, I <laughs> you know I've I've loved movies all my life and really fell in love with them when I was a teenager. And I don't even think at a teenager I would have appreciated that as much as I would as a now 33-year-old man who's seen more of his movies and realized how much of a master he is and how very few. Uh, people in the United States have seen his work, but uh, regardless, yeah, it's, I, I wish, I wish we got more with the directors. I, I know, I know we're lucky we're getting this series at all, but mm-hmm. it's, it's whetting my appetite for more of that behind the scenes uh, features on Disney plus. That is the one, one of the aspects besides some of the shows and stuff that are missing. It's that other component of Disney plus that I feel like could really take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, how hard can it be to put those things together? You think they could do more of that whilst the studios can't produce anything? You know, so. Well, yeah. And that's and part of it. It's that why not do it right now? But mm-hmm. going back with that, they make these for DVDs and Blu-rays and such. So just find find some storage space to throw them up there as well too and take the past ones from from the movies that are already out there and and get them up online yeah. too so for the people who do, maybe don't buy them and and didn't don't don't really know what it is about special features that are so interesting to watch maybe this opens their minds up and they want to continue doing that in the future because there's some mm-hmm. great information out there in those all right. Um, well, another thing that I've started watching on Disney Plus, another series I haven't gotten through the whole thing yet, is Prop Culture, and I found it very entertaining. There, there's some episodes are stronger than others, but you know, I think everybody loved the Mary Poppins one, and and they opened up strong with that. And then others, you know, I've enjoyed them. So, um, so have you watched this? I, I have watched it and I, I watched it all because I wasn't I wasn't enthralled with it. I loved the Mary Poppins episode and it reminded me of the, the 2013 D23 Expo when we got to see a lot of the Mary Poppins uh, mm-hmm. props in the in the Disney archives exhibit. But then beyond that, like I just really 
I don't think I was really engaged again with another episode until maybe Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And even that, like that was that got me because Rick Moranis. I love Rick Moranis. He is one of mm-hmm. one of my favorite actors. And of course, I, I had the nostalgia driven uh, feelings during during the uh, Muppet movie episode and cause, cause you know, my love of the Muppets, I, I had to, mm-hmm. I had to enjoy that. And as well as Roger rabbit, but like the Tron episode and nightmare before Christmas and, and Narnia, like as much as I do enjoy all of those movies, like I just didn't find them as interesting, particularly with Tron and nightmare because with Tron, like they said it multiple times, there's barely anything left in existence. Yeah. And that's not interesting. And with, with the, with nightmare before Christmas, you know, they're pulling out the, all of the figures that they used in the stop motion animation. And like, I, I guess because I've seen a lot, not necessarily with nightmare before Christmas, but with like, Leica movies and other stuff that Disney has done. I've <laughs> seen these characters up close before. It's not, there's something that wasn't as engaging about seeing them on the screen like some of the other props. The stories were great, but just you also want the wow of the props. Like, wow, they reunited this costume with that actor. And like, that's the the stuff that that I watched the show mm-hmm. for ultimately. But I also thought the host was a little bit pretentious, maybe. <laughs> I think I get the impression he's a bit inexperienced as a host in front of a camera. I might be wrong, but he didn't seem totally comfortable and seemed forced. But I, I, I but he apparently has a lot of things in his collection. <laughs> I will say that one of my favorite parts of it is actually the intro where they go through his collection and I'm looking at the props from like, killer clowns from outer space and other non-disney <laughs> properties and i'm like can we go into your closet and see all this stuff like i want to i want to know what that is yeah really so but I, I haven't seen uh the narnia one and the muppets one so i have to um watch that those and i don't know what else there might be at one point in the Narnia one, he yells at one of the actors. Not really yells. He, one of the actors wants to touch one of the props, and he's just like, "I wouldn't, I wouldn't." And I was like, "Oh, he just wants to touch it. Just let him touch it." But give him a pair of white gloves if it's a big deal. Let him touch it. He probably touched it before. <laughs> so, and um, speaking of Disney Plus, if you've been listening for a while, you know I had a whole Disney Plus saga going on in my home that extended to uh, electronics, home theater systems. I mean, the whole bit. It appears to have been corrected. <laughs> Finally, the uh, Best Buy started sending out the geek squads again this week, and I was, or last week, and I was. Um, on the list since my appointments had been canceled due to the coronavirus. And um, yeah, so, so far it's been a couple of days, but everything seems to be working. So keep our fingers crossed. So, oh, oh I'm doing something fun in a couple of weeks with Mary Jo and Leslie and a few others. You know how Mary Jo and I did Mouse Adventure at the museum and then we did we did Mouse Adventure at California Adventure. We're do, well because of the coronavirus and everybody's sheltering in. Mouse Adventure is doing Mouse Adventure in a box. 
And I have no idea what it is, but it, but when, when they had sign up day, Disney must have been running their server because they had all the same problems we've all come to know and love about Disney. Well, maybe not love, but, um, so they, they, you know, it took a couple of days for them to work it out. And then what they had to do was, um, they had, had so many people that wanted to do it that they had to have two different sessions. So we're in, we're in session two. There was actually a lottery for session two. And I, so I, we all, um, you know, applied everyone in our team and I, two of us got selected. So it was me and Leslie. And so Leslie signed us all up. So not entirely sure what it is, but I'm looking forward to it, but we all have to um, be able to have like Dropbox to share files and we all have to have like Skype or Zoom or something so we can all look at each other and work on it. So it'll be interesting. So I'll let you all know how that goes. So, yeah, I think we're doing it on the 14th or something. 12th, 14th, I don't know, one of those days. I probably should know. I'm sure it's in my calendar. And speaking of events on weekends, we want to wish... Everyone who's celebrating out there, a happy Mother's Day this weekend. And, um, and for those of you who your mother's no longer with you, we, um, you know, we know that's still a special day for you. And we hope that no matter what, it, it, your Mother's Day is filled with joyful memories for everybody. So, yeah. And, and you can, you can join in and watch later on the Disney Family Sing Along Volume Two is apparently that evening on mother's day i know craig you'll be singing along i you know what i might just i could or maybe i'll finally give in and watch the live action lady in the tramp i don't know it could i could do oh, oh gosh you have to you have you haven't watched that yet you have got to and tell me what you think i don't see myself watching it now if i didn't watch it within the first the first month i don't know if i'm going to yeah. well anyway but you can watch the disney family sing-along volume one on disney plus it's there if you missed it so and i imagine volume two will end up up there sooner or later oh yeah <laughs> and uh you know it's probably volume three as well volume four volume yeah. one throwback i for it yeah, I think these are going to be one of those things that's going to be really easy for Disney and ABC to make to fill in as when they start running out of shows to watch because, you know, production is shut down on on everything. So that and game shows. <laughs> so, well, several times a year, we invite members of our Connecting with Walt family to become a part of the show by submitting questions for me and Craig to answer. And questions are generally about Disney theme parks and resorts, Walt Disney's family, the Walt Disney Company, Imagineering, Disney films, and more. We, we In fact, we got a number of questions about books this time. So that is a new category that we've included. Um, this time around. And this week we are going to answer questions in the theme park category because that is the one we get the most questions about. And then next week we'll answer as many questions as we can in the remaining categories. So we may not get to all your questions today about theme parks that you submitted because there, there was a lot. So, but we'll get to as many as we can. So, so, Craig, do you want to select the first question? 
I guess I will. And uh, with this, you can say goodbye to these exact outfits and get used to the uh, next version of them. But I will select the first question. And the first question comes from Tim. And Tim says, in the same vein as great moments with Mr. Lincoln, would you like to see a great moments with Walt Disney attraction with an animatronic Walt using his recorded voice from various interviews he gave? Well, you probably know it, I think, Craig. A thousand percent I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah no, I, not an audio animatronic figure. However, Tim, I think that I agree with you. There should be a great moments with Walt Disney. And there sort of is one at the Disney Hollywood studio. You know, sometimes it's abbreviated because they have to have sneak previews of upcoming films. But I, I would like to see that expanded and I would like to see something at Disneyland. I still don't understand why we don't have something at Disneyland in this vein with great moments with Walt Disney. I think that, you know, when, when if you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum, you see how much, how well they're able to have Walt tell his own story because there's so many recordings and there's so much video of him. I would like to see them do something creative like that at Disneyland and at Walt Disney World, you know, shorter, but get the people that worked on the Walt Disney Family Museum. There there were some great Disney historians that contributed to that and have something that tells Walt's story or at least Walt's story associated with the theme parks because he should have a presence at least in, in the in the Magic Kingdom and at Disneyland. I'm not even saying it's a bad idea for like 50, 100 years from now. I don't know what my threshold on it would be, but essentially once you get past the generations that that truly were not living with him, then maybe it's an idea to explore. But right now, while there's there's still people who knew him and worked with him, something about that just feels completely odd awkward like I, i'd be concerned that imagineers couldn't do walt justice right away and later on like a hundred years from now if they tried then then i'd say why not but uh, you know they they know him from videos and such but no one's still alive that actually worked with him and and interacted with him so there can be a little bit more leniency in bringing him to life in that way you know so one day it it might not be a terrible idea but I could, I could probably live with it. Yeah, I, and also you have to get Walt's family to buy off on it. I think that would be a tough sell for them. Yeah, they need a lot of time in between. Like a, a couple generations past, they might not care as much. But if they end up being a protective family, like like the Tolkien's are with J.R.R. Tolkien's life, then it could become a battle with everything that they do and a, a lot of unhappiness with the depiction. Uh, so if, if not enough time has passed, it could be very hard to get the whole family actually on board. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. Well, that was a good one to start us off. Okay, I have one, and this is some Chris um, Recklin, Recline. What myth about Walt Disney World is your favorite you find most fascinating? You, you feel needs to be debunked or whatever phrase you want to include here. What myth is at the top of your list? Hmm. I, I don't want to cheat on this one, but the Walt's frozen head myth has just become 
this classic solely because of how absurd it is. So I, I'd say that's probably my favorite, even though I, I hope no one out there has actually ever believed it. I, I'm sure someone did at some point in time, but it's just even the concept of it is it's so absurd that I love any time it's brought up in, in the pulp pop culture that has actually sprung from it so that's that's definitely my favorite one and I, I don't think it needs to be debunked by science or anyone i think the world's smart enough to know that the frozen head of walt disney is not frozen in or around any disney park yeah i think this one is that's it's very closely associated with disneyland there's always that suspicion he's somehow underneath pirates of the caribbean or something but no he's not He's not. Mine is the myth, and this one is associated with Walt Disney World, that Walt Disney personally said, if you can dream it, you can do it. He never said that. Now, that's not to say this this wonderful little quote doesn't reflect his ideology or his philosophy, but he just didn't say it. It comes, but of course, the quote comes from a classic Epcot Center attraction, Horizons. Of course, that was a trip through the potential amazing futures of the world, um, from space station colonies to underwater cities. It was hosted by grandmother and grandfather, who, and it was sort of the successor to Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, which was, a, was one of Walt's very favorite attractions. So then you're asking, Well, if Walt didn't say it, who did? Well, Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald wrote that quote specifically for the Horizons attraction at Epcot Center. And and he used it in numerous ways. So it was from dialogue in the ride to graphics for the attraction. But and, and I still see that all around. Hallmark, you know, has its line of Disney you know, items, and that's always on a plaque or something. Exactly, little statues. Yeah, and uh, yeah, but unfortunately, you know, we have to credit Tom Fitzgerald for that rather than Walt. Yeah, and that's just one of a couple misquotes, and at least one that could kind of sound like Walt. I, I get more annoyed by butchering a movie quote more than like completely misattributing a quote to a different person. But any, anyways, it's my turn now, so I'm going to choose a question from Katie. And Katie asked, what is a good first ride at Disneyland for first-time visitors? Hmm. Well, for me, I think going on the train. You know, they, they always say, Walt, you know, Walt, Walt built Disneyland so he'd ha- he could put his train around it. But uh, it, you get a wonderful view of the park, of course, so much of Walt is associated with trains. If you've listened to the show for any length of time, there's there's so many train stories. And he saw trains, they opened up his imagination as a traveling to to all over the United States and in, and in other countries, he rode trains. He just loved trains. And um, I just think you have to, you have to, you know, ride that train around the park. Plus, unlike Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, Disneyland's train, it actually is a Grand Circle tour in that you see the park and you see where the different attractions are. You really get your bearings. There are many more stops along the way than at the Magic Kingdom. So it's it really is a transportation system also at Disneyland. So I would recommend... Um, the, the Disneyland Railroad. 
That is a great choice, and I love it. I think for me, I would have to go with Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I think a lot of people would say it, and there are very obvious reasons why. Uh, if they've been to other Disney parks, you know, Disneyland still gives a good wow factor with their pirates. Like I, I haven't been to Shanghai and, and seen that version, so I'm leaving that out of this. But from the people I've talked to, uh, they, they've said that they've either loved it or they don't believe that it should necessarily be classified with the rest of the pirates' rides just because how next level it is. So really, if you're comparing Disneyland's with Walt Disney World's, then it's definitely going to knock your socks off. And in terms of just visiting Disneyland for the first time, I think it also works well, too, because it gives you an idea of what makes a Disney park so great and and features all of those elements that make Disney attractions great, from the story to the music to the iconic characters. And and beyond that, if you, if you know the movies and seen them, but you haven't been to the parks, then at least you get on this ride and you're like, hey, there the movies are, and you have that to look forward to. So I just think it's a well-rounded choice. It, it's safe, so not, not exciting, but it's well-rounded, and I think that it's one that works. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it's so iconic for a Disney theme park, and especially Disneyland's. And, uh, and plus, New Orleans Square is just beautiful. And so it's a beautiful setting for it. And if you're smart enough and get there very early in the day or wait until the very end of the night, then you don't have a bad line at all. And you're not going to be backed up on the bridge and looping around. So it's just a much more pleasant experience. Yeah, I agree with you. The, and the, the queue moves very quickly, so um, which is nice. So, and, and you have to keep in mind the queue for Disneyland's Pirates is almost all outside, whereas the queue for the Magic Kingdoms is is completely inside. So don't let the line um, scare you. So. Okay, let me see. What? Um, I'm trying to think here. Some of these we've answered on previous shows. So, but, um, well, uh, okay, this is from Mackenzie Ledley, uh, Craig. What are your favorite Mary Blair touches to Walt Disney World and Disneyland? Uh, why does it seem that Mary's artwork is not for sale? Would love to hear anything about Mary Blair and her Disney connection. For me, as a Walt Disney World person, it's easy. It, it has to be the Mary Blair artwork in the contemporary concourse. I would have discovered Mary Blair first, say, on the Disney sing-along songs tape. The the one with It's a Small World would have been my first real interaction with that ride. But uh, so, so the paintings in the contemporary would have actually been my second discovery of Mary Blair's work. But I would say uh, at this point, it would be sacrilege if they would try to ever remove those paintings in the concourse. I mean, even if they change the theme of the entire hotel, I, I don't see a world in which they could remove them. They're they're beautiful. They're they're perfect. And you could just take so much time taking in all of the details. And, and if you're a true Walt Disney World fan, then chances are you love them and, and you're staring at them every time you're riding through the contemporary, not looking down at Chef Mickey's or any any anything else down there. And uh, it's the murals just they're they're what sticks out to me most at Walt Disney World. But I'm actually more interested in to hear what you have to say about Disneyland, since there's probably a little bit more to choose from. 
Yeah, there is. And, and so unfortunately, some of it is gone. <laughs> but um, yeah, but, the, you know, Mary Blair did character designs for attractions at Disney theme parks. For me, it's Disneyland's Small World. It's a Small World attraction with that wonderful facade that we have. And of course, all the work that she did inside, she was instrumental in having it, uh, you know, in, in having it brought over from the 6465 World's Fair in that Walt, you know, told her, I want you to work on this and design it, not only just um, the interior for the fair, but also the exterior. And she worked with Rolly Crump, you know, on that as, as well as Alice Davis. Um, for me too, besides, of course, the huge mosaic at the contemporary Hotels Grand Canyon concourse, uh, the, there was a fiesta scene at the Mexican Pavilion, Mexico Pavilion at Epcot Center that she had designed also. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and as a sort of a tribute, you know, it's a small world was copied for Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, and Hong Kong Disneyland. But she, um, she, even after Walt passed, she's continued to work for the Disney company. She made in 1967, she made several murals for Disneyland's Tomorrowland. There was a mural for the promenade at Tomorrowland at Disneyland and two other murals of a similar design were at the entrance to Tomorrowland. Um, I know one remains, although it's damaged and covered up. One, I unfortunately found out it's, um, sad end at, when I was at Disneyland Paris. So you have to listen to that show and you'll find out. <laughs> it just seems horrific to me. But um, yeah, so why her work is not sold, I'm sure some of it has to do with the family and all that, although I do occasionally see sketches, things like that up for sale, some of her artwork. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure it has to do with the family and the rights and all that. So you know, we can even look at Disneyland's It's Small World and when they took the characters in there and, and made them in her style. So I think that's what's most important with Mary Blair's work is that there's a heap of illustrators and animators out there that have been inspired by her. So as long as that inspiration continues, those Mary Blair touches will continue on in the parks. So they may not be her personal touches, but they're still going to be done in her style. And, and that's important and can can cause her work to, to live forever. So. But okay, my question now, and I know we I know we weren't going to try to bring a lot of like current events into this show, but I feel like this question is interesting from the aspect of where we're currently at with Disney right now. So, anyways, K- Katrina asked, "Do you think we'll see new non-intellectual property rides in the parks?" And I think now's a good time to drive home the probable answer to that question. I I don't see that happening right now. When you have built-in fan base, when you base uh, when you have an attraction that's based on a film that's already really popular, I think that you know you know that that right there, you know that it's going to bring people into the park. Whereas something that is new and inventive and different. It's a bigger gamble, you know, financially for them. And will it have the longevity, you know, um, as an attraction based on an IP, you know, that's questionable. So I think it will be a very long time before we see 
uh, and you know a non-IP original attraction in the parks. Plus, they've sunk so much money into other things like Star Wars and Marvel that I think we're going to see a lot more coming from from those films before we see you know, anything new and original. Uh, we're living in a world where the parks have lost a ton of money because of the closures. Without income, they can't invest in every single project that they had on the table before, and they have to be very selective about what they're actually going to work on. And they have to look at which projects will bring the biggest dividends, and it's just too hard to justify on an, an original story when you have no basis for, for its actual long-term success, where if you base something on a blockbuster movie, you have a pretty good idea of its popularity and its ability to sell merchandise. And of course, merchandise has a big impact of it, especially since it's linked up directly with Disney Parks. So, uh, and it's a great way to see the interest there too. So, it's a shame, and we we've had this question before, and I think we've even answered it kind of before. Uh, but I think right now it's it's even more relevant, and I think the any hope of a non intellectual property attraction is pretty much gone. And I feel like at this point, the only hope we have in a non intellectual property attraction is if there's a ceo way down the line and um, many people pass bob chapek at this point that grew up with non-intellectual property attractions you know something like expedition everest and they they say well, we need to get back to making stories and attractions like this but and until anything like that changes way down the line i, I don't think any non-intellectual property attraction has a chance yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. And it definitely won't happen under Bob Chapek. So, <laughs> and I think he's going to be around a while. So, anyway. All right. I'm going to grab one that I have the answer to, but Craig, you might know of other stories or want to comment on it. And Don Potter, he wants the backstory of Doritos and Disney. He thinks it'd be a neat talking point or, or how just how some food products can have Disney ties. Well, I did talk about this on my 60 Years of Disneyland series, but I'll run through it really quickly because it's sort of a cool story. And and Craig and I are recording on, on Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> so, so it seems appropriate. So, so shortly after Disneyland opened in 1955, the founder of Frito-Lay got permission from Walt Disney to open a restaurant in Frontierland with sort of a Mexican-ish theme. Because remember, this was um, when, you know, Walt couldn't afford to run everything. So he had to have vendors to run a lot of the shops and restaurants. Years later, he would buy all those contracts back and run them himself. Um Casa de Fritos was the name of this restaurant. And unsurprisingly, it was all about Fritos. <laughs> and customers got free Fritos with every dish. Um, Fritos were incorporated into many of the dishes. They were dispensed by an automatic vending machine that featured the Frito kid asking his assistant's Klondike to bring up a bag of Fritos from a mine shaft. So I don't know if they mined for Fritos or, or, or what went on there. So anyway, Casa de Fritos contracted their tortilla production company to um, a company called Alex Foods. Um, and they, they contracted their tortilla production to a company called Alex Foods. And one of the salesmen from Alex Food was making a delivery to Casa de Fritos, and he saw that um, 
the restaurant was throwing away all their stale tortillas into the garbage. And so he gave the cook a little tip. He said, fry them and sell them as chips instead of throwing them away. And so Casa de Fritos began making these fried chips. They seasoned them and they were enormously successful. But Casa de Fritos never reported this menu item to the Frito-Lay company. So a year later, the new vice president of Frito-Lay, Archibald Clark West, he dropped by the restaurant without any warning to see how they're doing. And he saw hundreds of guests enjoying this tasty little treat. And he named them Doritos. And he made a deal with Alex Foods to produce them as a snack. Well, Doritos started to become immensely popular. And so the production of chips was moved to a bigger factory in Tulsa. And throughout his life, though, West was completely committed to Doritos. He even served as a taste tester after he retired from the vice presidency. Now, he said his favorite was plain corn, but he conceded that he he liked Cool Ranch as well. And then shortly before he passed, he tasted a cheeseburger-flavored Dorito, and he just spat it out. So... Yeah, yeah. At his funeral, his daughter threw Doritos into the grave after him at his request. So the next time you open a bag of Doritos, recall that it was created from the garbage at Disneyland. <laughs> you went way in more depth than I could have ever went into. But I think the important takeaway is that next time you go to Taco Bell and order a Doritos Locos Taco, you can now say to yourself that you're eating Disneyland history. And I I also talk about other foods in my 60 years of Disneyland series, like churros. How did churros become so closely associated with Disney parks? Get into that in in the show. And why does does Disney have the, the... the foot-long churros and all that. When everywhere else you go, you know, they're little bite-sized ones. Do you cover why Disneyland churros taste better than Walt Disney World churros? Um, No, I do not. I don't think I've had them in both parks, to be honest with you. Remember, I had my first churro on air <laughs> when we were doing our 7 and 7 for um, the Diz Unplugged. I completely forgot about that. That was like 2015 or 2016. I was I was even in the opening credits for a little while of our Walt Disney World show eating it for the first time. <laughs> so I don't think I've had one at Walt Disney World. They don't taste as good, so don't waste your time. So now I'm going to let you talk a little bit more about history here in a way. Uh, Timothy said, with the new Jungle Cruise movie being released soon, which, of course, now is next year because of everything being shut down. uh, Anyways, Timothy wonders, with the skippers on the ride, do they tell the same jokes? Who wrote the jokes? And has the ride always been portrayed in a comical manner? Well, good question, Timothy. Actually, it was not originally portrayed in a comical manner at all at Disneyland. It was originally Walt. You know, it was Adventureland was based on his True Life Adventure series, which they were they were not exactly documentaries, but they were close. But they told a story, and that's what Adventureland is supposed to do: is tell a story. So the Jungle Cruise. It told the story about the animals that you encountered and and the different 
rivers. There was no humor whatsoever in it. The humor didn't get introduced until Walt, Walt hung out in the parks. He listened, he liked to listen in at what guests were saying about the attractions, but you know, he waited in line with everybody else to see because he didn't want the lines too long. <laughs> Okay, what would Walt say? I think I know what he might say about the crowding of the parks, but, you know, but um, anyway, but Walt would stand in lines with a stopwatch and he would also go on the attractions with a stopwatch and he did on the Jungle Cruise when he and he got upset when he felt the skippers were uh, piloting those boats a little too quickly through the cruise because he knew how long it was meant to be and, and he got on them about that. But he overheard there was a, a woman with her son and the son said, Oh, let's go on the jungle cruise or the jungle boat ride. And, and she said, no, we've already been on that. And they moved on and Walt realized there needed to be changes to the park. So he brought in a few people, including Mark Davis, um, the, the animator and he asked him to take a look at the park. Cause he Walt realized Attractions needed to change to keep people coming back. And one of the things Mark said was, there are no laughs in, on some of the attractions in this park. You need humor here. And and Walt told Mark, go for it. And so that's when we got a lot of the humorous vignettes, you know, like the Lost Safari, you know, getting the point in the end, and the the uh, elephant bathing pool. And a few other, a few other scenes were all thanks to Mark. And that's when the script changed. The script was very strict. And, you know, it came from Burbank, that script. And, and Marty Sklar had something to do with it and others too. But the skippers had to stick to this script and it changed over time. It's changed over time. But I know that there are, the, and, and, the skippers do throw in their own humor. They can also submit one-liners and all of that to be considered for incorporation into the script. Now, it's my understanding that there is the basic script, and then there's one-liners, and that the, the Jungle Cruise skippers can then choose to add into the basic script so that each cruise doesn't necessarily have to be identical so that the um, jungle cruise skippers can put, they can decide, okay, I like these one-liners and jokes. And another jungle cruise skipper might like some different one-liners and jokes. So they'll put, he or she will put those into their spiel. So you could get different spiels, but they're all pretty much approved. Yeah, I I know a lot of past skippers, and it's really frowned upon to go off book. But at the same time, just like, like any comedians out there, they need an audience to be able to hone in on and some of the new material. So eventually you do have to practice. And I, I back then, the the ones that I knew, they just hoped that they weren't get getting secretly audited because sometimes you have you have cast members from other attractions other areas come in and and they actually do audit i'm not sure if it's a practice that still continues to this day it was when i worked there and the people that i knew worked there so yeah if if they just happened to be going off book when when they were being audited then they could definitely get in trouble for some of those jokes but i you know that it makes me think of jingle cruise and 
why I think I like Jingle Cruise so much, especially in those first years, because uh, the the first year, you know, they didn't really have a lot to work with. But but after that, they after that first year, I feel like they really started to explore the jokes, adding in a little bit more, started to hone in on those old jokes as well too. just keep practicing working on that material until it's transformed to what it is today, which now I think it's it's absolutely fantastic. So uh, it's been interesting to see how that procedure has all played out and and transformed since it started. Yeah, I really miss the Jingle Cruise at Disneyland because they did such a good job with it, from the decorations to the skipper's spiel. And, I mean, how much could it cost? I don't understand why, you know, that got cut from the budget. And because everybody bemoans it, you know, they all want it back. And it's not like they had to take the attraction down for a week or something like they do with Haunted Mansion or even longer with It's a Small World um, in order to redress it. So, um, yeah, I don't get it. it it's sad. And, it, you know, it made sense the the year that it didn't happen because they drained Jungle Cruise for, for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But then once the attraction came back, but Jingle Cruise didn't come back for the holidays, it, it was disappointing, especially because I feel like Disneyland's Jingle Cruise was superior to Walt Disney World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed them both, but yeah, I thought Disneyland's uh, they did a. I thought they did a really good job on that one. Yeah. Okay, I have one. It's my turn, right? Or is it yours? Yes, yours. And we have time for one more question. Oh, okay. And it's mine. Okay. Uh let's. Ooh, it better be good. Um. Okay. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to quickly add answer one because it's a, it's a one word answer um jerry rusiti people mover design could it be rebuilt and brought back no i have it on jerry i'm sorry because i love the people mover like i know you must i have it i have heard it from as high up as i've been able to go there's no way it's coming back um there, there are structural issues with it they when they've made changes to attractions um They've blocked some of the track that went through the interior of the building. So it's gone, you know, so it's just a hulk of, of track sitting there. And I'm sure when they finally decide to turn their attention to Tomorrowland, it doesn't, it, that will be gone. So anyway, okay. How about for this? Uh, I'm going to ask you, Craig, I don't really have an answer for this, but um, um, Elon Fisher's, asked at this moment or whenever it is being filmed okay alan must have esp <laughs> because we had no idea we were doing video so alan when when, when we asked the question so alan you know thumbs up to you um you, you better buy a lottery ticket um what is your favorite or the best table service restaurant in all of walt disney world and separately doesn't have to be from the same restaurant what's your favorite dish in all of walt disney world and those are tough questions. Yeah, they are tough questions. Uh, my favorite dish is it's definitely at Coronado Springs at the Three Bridges Bar and Grill that they added in like a year and a half ago or so. But uh, the the new additions that you know the new addition that they added in before the the tower opened up and uh, over over there there's a signature burger that's 
probably my favorite hamburger I've ever had at Walt Disney World. I'd even go as far to say it might be my favorite hamburger I've had anywhere. Easily, easily my favorite one in Orlando. And the first time that Kylie and I ate there, she got the burger, but I ordered the a chicken dish and and once i tried hers i actually made her cut the burger in half and then i i completely ate all of mine and then half of hers as well too uh, but it's ultimately the reason why i love it it's just so salty and it just like it awakens my taste buds and the the seasoning on the patty it's it just kind of blends with the savoriness of the manchego cheese that they put on there and it just starts to make my mouth water like crazy and i just want more and more and I, kind of the best way to describe it is it's almost like that same feeling you get when you get movie theater popcorn and you know like oh, i'm just I'm, i just want a little bit but then once you start getting your taste buds hit by that saltiness and and the the butter it's just like you sit down and all of a sudden you're eating an entire large popcorn by yourself and and that's just how it happens so uh, that's that's kind of the best equivalent of that hamburger for me and i, I could see the argument if some people said it's probably over seasoned but for me it's it's perfect but uh, do you have an answer to the the first part of the question at least while i try to think of think of a restaurant I don't know, but but when I come out for Destination D, you and I have to go and get this burger. Um, one of my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite dishes. It's actually there was a burger at um, at uh, I can't I can't think of what restaurant it is. Was it the Park Fair over at Grand Floridian? What's the name of that one cafe? Yeah, okay, that's what it is. They had a really good burger there that had lobster on it. And um, I thought, oh, okay, this doesn't sound appetizing. And then everybody told me it was great. So Carol and I both had it. That was one of the few restaurants Carol and I actually always made a point of returning to because we liked that burger so much. So we were comp- we were shocked by that. Um, I think my, I don't know if I have a very favorite restaurant. Um, Carol and I always ate those chefs de France. And um, so that, that probably ended up being our favorite restaurant in Walt Disney World. That's one of the ones I find myself going to pretty often, but I, I'm struggling with this. There's There's lots of places that I love, but you know, since I just talked about my favorite dish, and if you ask me what my favorite restaurant is, I'd probably say it's where my favorite dish is. So you could say that, but I, it's just, it's a complex question. There's days that I'd say I love the plaza, especially when you have that perfect view of Cinderella Castle, and and it just is a wonderful experience. But then, then something like Be Our Guest or uh, California Grill can just be a really romantic experience, and and then something like Hoopty Do Review. It's not complex food, but the the overall experience there is actually just a ton of fun. So, uh, I you know I I'd also throw in too that my my actual favorite restaurant might not even be a restaurant itself, but 
like a, a grander thing like a, a monorail crawl where maybe you you stop and have like sushi at the Polynesian and then get something to eat at Grand Floridian Cafe and then head over to California Grill at night for that that cocktail or dessert in the lounge like right around fireworks you're not going to get a spot there because it's it's too crazy and insane because everyone wants to be up there to watch the fireworks but i i that's if you, in an ideal world that would be how it would happen and i just kind of sample my way around the world that sounds good yeah now the ultimate dining experience caroline did this was always on our bucket list and i'm so happy we got to do this before she passed and we went to victoria and albert's Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine who else I would ever go with to this again, because that is such a unique experience. And you go with your special someone to this, I think, and for a special occasion. And, uh, and oh, my gosh, it was fantastic. Our server was incredible. And uh, he just knew just how much to be attentive and how much to stand back which is an art form in a restaurant of that type. And um, the food was exquisite. The wine pairings were perfect. Um, it's fabulous. I mean, if you ever can do that, and if you can afford it, um, because I know not every budget can handle that, and we saved up for it. Um, it's, oh my goodness, it, was, it lives up to its reputation. Dreaming of going there one day. Yeah, and um, oh, and a cheddar cheese soup at Les Celliers. I lo- I love that. I would go there just to have a big bowl of soup with their pretzel bread uh, and all that. I- I've made their cheddar cheese soup at home. It's pretty and easy. First, it yeah yeah. Although it's time consuming and it's not inexpensive with all the different cheeses. And for a while, it just. I was sure I was making a Disney themed meal. I I don't know what the occasion was, but it was sort of a fancy meal uh, as for me and Carol. And I thought this cheese, this, this soup is going to be a disaster. I mean, cause you sort of nurse it along and I was, and suddenly as I'm, I don't know, an hour three or something, <laughs> I'm stirring it. Um, it just all came together. It was like magic. I don't know what happened. And it was delicious. I just wish I had pretzel bread <laughs> to go with it. Yeah, I've made it once. And my problem with soup is that by the time I finish making it, I, I just don't really want it anymore. And then I have too much leftovers from what I didn't eat. And at least I'd say with this soup that you can make like a fondue out of it with your pretzel bread. That's very true. That was good. Okay. Well, that was fun. There was there were a good list of questions here, and there were a lot of good ones we didn't get to, so we apologize for that. Some actually we have answered on previous shows, but we know some of you might be new listeners, so you're just sort of jumping in right now. A couple were answered in my sixty years of Disneyland series, or even on connecting with Walt, like um, how involved was Walt in the purchase Secret Land purchase in Orlando? We covered that on this show. So, um, so if you ever get a chance to binge listen to past episodes of either our, our uh, legacy Disneyland show or this show, uh, so a lot of the questions that were submitted will actually get answered. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, but we look forward to doing this again next week where we'll cover, um, 
the categories are Walt Disney and the Disney family. Um, there, we did get a question on Imagineering. Uh, there's a question on films. Oh, there's several questions on films in the studios. And the Walt Disney Company, there's a number of questions. And I already mentioned books is a new category right now. We've got a lot of questions about books. And then there's a miscellaneous um, in there where things just didn't fit anywhere else. So they fit into that category. So we hope you enjoyed this. We hope you enjoyed this experiment of um, watching us. Let us know what you thought. Okay, Craig, well, gosh, we had five weeks of Mary Jo <laughs> doing this. And then, of course, you had to fill in when I was gone. But now we're back to our, we call it an alternate format, but it seems to be our primary format these days. But anyway, we're going to take a look at um, what's going on May 10th. So, well, for the week of May 10th. So, you all set? I'll be honest. I'm nervous. I, I think I got used to the multiple choice there for a little while, but I think I'm ready. Yeah, well, it's a lot easier for me not having to come up with all those multiple choices that that will trick you. But then I always throw in one that you can always just get rid of right away. So anyway, that's what I would that's what I did when I was a teacher on on the multiple choice exams. There was always one that the students would know, okay, it can possibly be that. So anyway, okay. So for May 10th, for the first time since moving to Hollywood, Walt Disney delivers a cartoon without a continuing character on May 10th, 1929. What is the title of this cartoon short? I'm going to go with it having to be a silly symphony. So narrowing it down, I think it has to be skeleton dance. Absolutely. Yeah, the very first silly symphony, the the grand experiment. And it marks young Les Clark's debut as an animator. He worked on this with Abiworks. And this will be released in August of 1929 to a wide release. But yeah, this was groundbreaking. And, you know, some theater owners thought, oh, this would be too macabre and it would scare little children and women for some reason. Well, I guess back in those days, women just didn't have the constitution for things like this. And they were always an excuse when Walt tried to pioneer things. <laughs> like, you know, Mickey Mouse would scare women because they'd be scared of a giant mouse and all that. But, um, Anyway, yeah, so it was Skeleton Dance. And so Walt, again, in, in true Walt fashion, he had to, like, you know, get get an agreement with the theater to show it just so that he could prove that there was an audience for it. And there was. So then it got distributed. So anyway, so very good. You're off to a good start. Okay, May 11th. We'll get a little more contemporary. The 11th Disney Princess is officially crowned at Walt Disney World on May 11th, 2013. What is her name? Uh, that would be Merida. I, I know because I was there for the celebration. It was it was a nightmare. It was it was crazy. They They all came out on stage, and I got to the park early for it, but I needed probably another hour earlier just to get a decent spot, so... I'll never forget that day. And my biggest takeaway from it was get to the places you really want to be at very, very early. Yeah, yeah. Because this took place in front of um, Cinderella Castle. And yeah, all 10 of of 
Merida's fellow royals were in attendance. Although I don't consider all of these people princesses. Like, um, oh, well, like Mulan. I mean, did she, she didn't she didn't become royalty. I guess she's Disney royalty, but in the film, she didn't really marry a prince. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. That's one of the questions. Like with um. Maybe I'm wrong, but is Pocahontas considered one? She is. Pocahontas is on the list, and but her, I guess, yeah, her father was a chief, so I guess that's how they they did. It's a very loose connection, but I, I'm not going to begrudge them their royal lineage. Though. <laughs> I mean, because uh, I just rewatched uh, Mulan and. Uh, the week that you know the live action film should have come out, I watched it on Disney Plus. It, it's I love that film, so it's really well done. I could do without Mushu, but anyway, I think it's a good film. So, alrighty, May twelfth, members of the Board of Governors of the Carrollwood Pacific Historical Society gather in Disneyland on May twelfth, two thousand and five, to congratulate. A fellow society governor, animator, and Disney legend for receiving the Walter E. Disney Railroad Preservation Award, the highest honor given by the society. What is the name of this Disney legend who received this award? I think you have me stumped on this one because you said Carrollwood Pacific, so I jumped in my brain directly to Ward Kimball, but... I'm, I think he was gone by that time, so not quite sure. You're on the right track in that it was uh, it was a Disney legend who was also into trains in a big way. <laughs> My brain is not working, so I'm going to need you to just give me this one. Okay, Ollie Johnston. Yeah, because he, he owned the Marie E., which is now owned by John Lasseter. And um, and there's a, a such a touching video of when John Lasseter purchased the Marie E and he restored it, and he and I talk about this again in my sixty years of Disneyland series, or I might have done even a separate segment. I'm not sure, but John Lasseter had to go through all of this because he wasn't he wasn't a I don't think he was a Disney employee at the time. I don't know if Pixar had been bought yet. I'm not, but I might be wrong. Um, he arranged for the Marie E to be put on the Disneyland tracks before the park opened. And then Ollie Johnson was invited to the park and he just thought it was a photo op or he was getting some award or something. They gave him a, a, a believable story, but not the real one. And when they put, they had to take him to the Frontierland station, um, because that's the only one that's, you know, accessible. Um, Because Ollie Johnson was in a wheelchair by that time. And when he saw, when he recognized, it was not in the station. They they had it pull into the Frontierland station, but he recognized the whistle before it ever entered the station. And this is on YouTube. It is so touching. I mean, the hardest of hearts would not tear up at this and then he gets behind the throttle and john lasseter tells the whole story i mean i've he's i've heard him tell the story how hard it was because 
when Ollie bought this thing, he had it like jerry rigged and all that. So John Lasseter had to get it to a point where it was easily, you know, the throttle could be easily used and all that. And, um, but it had no brakes. So, um, Ollie Johnston, though, he started that out. He took it for the Grand Circle Tour. And keeping in mind now, Ollie, he was in his final years. And he, um, there was a cameraman on the track of when the Marie E came out of the tunnel coming to the Frontierland station. They wanted that image of it. And if you knew that that train had no brakes, and that cameraman standing in front of the train, and there was a, a an older gentleman at its helm. Uh, you would think, oh no! And Ollie stopped that thing on a dime. It was amazing. <laughs> so it was. It was very special. Now I'm trying to be able to, I don't know, finagle a ride on the Marie E over at the John Lasseter's um, winery. So anyway, well, and believe me, I'm working on it. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so, okay, May 13th, which Disneyland nighttime spectacular held its first dress rehearsal at a special premiere party for annual pass holders on May 13th, 1997? 1997. This, this is when the Walt Disney Company learned the power of the internet. Oh, um, normally I'd be struggling with this one, but I believe the answer is light magic. And that's because one of my dear friends, Sam Carter, loves to post about this, this parade. And I, I think he genuinely loves it, but uh, it keeps it fresh in my brain. So I believe that's it. Yeah, I've seen his stuff. <laughs> and um, Yes, it is light magic. It was um, short-lived. <laughs> it it struggled along until Labor Day 1997 and then it was gone. And um yeah, the annual pass holders, well, they had their phones and they started posting how much they disliked it. And like magic, again, 60 years of Disneyland series, we go into great detail on why this was a disaster. This is when you don't um you you launch you launch something when it's ready and not because this is the date you said it would be ready because it was not ready for showtime but too much advertising had gone out and too many things had been printed and all of that and um it was a disaster and plus it was coming on the heels of the main street electrical parade which was beloved by Disneylanders. And um, yeah, so they all got on their little phones and um, talked about how horrible it was. And even when when Disneyland fixed all the problems, they just couldn't overcome all the, well, couldn't overcome the internet. <laughs> Still what they're dealing with today. So what's the saying that history repeats itself all the time? Yeah, yeah. And you know, Walt Walt didn't see final parts of the Caribbean because it he felt it wasn't ready. And so he had them close it down and and said don't because you know, and they closed down you know, the Blue Bayou because Walt didn't want 
the restaurant to be open without the attraction because he felt seeing the boats go by and the whole bayou experience was all part of the dining experience. And, um, and so he told him, he told him, don't let them force you to open it before the attraction's ready. That's what he said to the lead Imagineers. And, and they didn't. And Walt passed away in the meantime, but to Walt, the show was the most important thing. So. As it should be. Okay. Well, Craig, May 14th. What filmmaker was born in Modesto, California on May 14th, 1944? Some of his films would become inspirations for Disney theme park attractions. This is where it'd be great to have multiple choice because I feel like... Well, he probably enjoyed Monday a whole lot. Thank you for that little hint. I'm going to go with George Lucas. That's right. It was It's George Lucas. His popular Star Wars and Indiana Jones adventure movies, of course, are the inspiration for so many attractions and Galaxy's Edge. And he was the executive producer of Captain EO. So can't hold that against him. And, you know, and the animation studio Pixar was first founded as the graphics group, which is one third of the computer division of Lucasfilm. And, um, and then of course, in 2012, Lucas sold the rights to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Industrial Lights and Magic and Skywalker Sound to the Walt Disney Company. So I guess now if, if Princess Merida had been crowned today, Princess Leia would have been there at Cinderella Castle, right? Uh, I, I feel like will keep princesses animated and and change the verbiage to animated princesses. Granted, I I think Leia has been animated before, so that could blow up in my face. But anyways, George George Lucas fascinates me. I I actually have his biography by Brian J. Jones sitting down on my stack of books that I need to read. So one day I'll get around to figuring out why he's such a strange, strange man. (laughs) Okay. Um, okay. May fifteenth, Walt Disney's first silent short to feature Mickey and Minnie Mouse premiered as a sneak preview at a theater on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, on May fifteenth, nineteen twenty-eight. What is the title of this cartoon short? Well, if it's the first silent one, then plain crazy. That's right. That's right. It's a parody of the Charles Lindbergh craze that was going on at the time. It cost a whopping $1,772 to make. And it's the very first appearance of Clarabelle the Cow in it. And um, and um, it's co-directed by Walt Disney and of iWorks. iWorks is also given credit as the main animator, but he is assisted by Hugh Harmon and Rudolph Ising. This is the last project Harmon and Ising worked on because they jumped to a new studio formed by Carl or Charles Mintz, which of course he, he, he's infamous in Disney history. And then they would go on to leave Mensa Studio to start Warner Brothers and the Metro Goldwyn Mayer Animation Studios. Um, of course, sound would later be added to Plain Crazy, and it officially would be released March 1929, four months after Steamboat Willie. I do enjoy Plain Crazy a lot. I've I've always been a cheerleader for it. So something about it always attached to my brain, and I've always enjoyed it. He was uh, well. That he was, I think, at his most uh, mischievous and cheeky 
was in that film. I mean, using using Minnie Mouse's bloomers as a as a parachute and all kinds of stuff, trying to steal a kiss from her. All, all the stuff that you know we don't think of Mickey as being you know quite that um, bold, um, but he was in his younger days. Before he, I guess, before he had grew up and had a mortgage. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so, okay, and our final question of, for this week, May sixteenth, what attraction made its debut at Walt Disney World's Disney MGM Studios on May sixteenth, nineteen ninety one? Hmm. Nineteen ninety one. Oh, um. This would be Muppet Vision. That's right. Muppet Vision 3D. Okay. So, you know, I had to throw a, a Muppet one in here. Um, it's housed It's housed in a 500-plus seat multimedia 3D theater located in a further expansion of the Backlot Annex area. And I do like Muppet Vision 3D. Um, it'd be fun if they um, did a, you know, a newer version of it, but still kept kept that same theme and that same level of madness and chaos. Yeah. The, the hard part is with any good story, you know, it can stick around a long time, but a couple of moments can still take away from it. Like with Muppet vision, when they, they break through the wall at the end and you see all the 90 outfits that kind of takes away, but, and yeah, other things, little minor things like the projection could really need a, a good upgrade. But I, I feel like it Muppet vision could still be revived into something that could be great with just a little loving care. As true Muppet fans, we, we'd chain ourselves to the theater if they ever tried to get rid of it. I would hate to see that go. I really would. Because I think that that is one of the perfect venues for the Muppets. It, it's how they got their start, for most of us, was that original Muppet show. And so I, I just think, to me, it's just it's just a continuation of that. If they got rid of that show at that point, they just need to sell the Muppets back to Jim Henson and be done with it once and for all. Just let it go. Yeah, yeah. Because it's I don't know why Disney just can't wrap their heads around what to do with the Muppets. You need someone in charge of it who cares about it. And hopefully that person comes along sometime and there is a happy ending. I hope so. I hope they find a proper space and that they're given their their proper due and all that. And I love that TV series that I watched on Disney Plus. And how sad that it ends. That series just ends so abruptly with them worried about being canceled. <laughs> I thought, did the writers know this? <laughs> So much Muppet work is done with blue screen. I wish they could just be doing some Muppet stuff at home. Send the Muppets to the puppeteers and and let them make anything. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah. Why didn't they, they should be doing shorts like those fellows are doing them for Olaf right now. Those little 30 second shorts that are so entertaining. And and how long do you think it took Josh Gad to record all those? A minute and a half? <laughs> it, at least we got the one video with Kermit singing Rainbow Connection. So hopefully that did well enough and got shared around enough that it's just the, the start of a lot more. I hope so. 
I really hope so. Well, Craig, you did really well. This was a long history segment as we all, as we filled in and all that. That was fun. You did a great job this week, though. Good. You're, you're up on your history. Uh, well, I, I try to, I, try, I think I know your, your expertise, but um, <laughs> anyway, I, li- I like to mix it up. Okay, well, Craig, this was fun. I hope our listeners um, enjoyed being viewers. And now I, I'm assuming there will be a video and an audio version of this. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. We can't ever abandon audio considering this is a it's an audio podcast primarily. And and we don't want to force any of our audio listeners to have to watch a video and when, when they've spent over a hundred episodes now being able to listen to us, but hopefully, uh, if anything, this drives new audience to the audio versions that that didn't know we were out there before by having this on YouTube. And because yeah, we haven't we haven't had this on YouTube except since way way back when we used to post the audio shows, but it would just be with like the connecting with Walt logo and no visuals at all. So our first real true video episode. Yeah. So, so if you are new because you found us on YouTube, Craig and I are here just about every week. If you are a Disney fan of any aspect of Walt Disney, uh, you know, the Imagineers, the theme parks, the films, the uh, just the stories. I mean, anything about Disney, then this is a show for you. So, because we, we tell you how it all happened and give you, give you a lot of behind the scenes stories and all that. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me on the various shows I'm on, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Um, Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at our Connecting with Walt um, page at Connecting Walt. Um, all right. And Craig, thank you for all the extra work in putting together this this like i feel like it's a double edition you know video as well as audio so so if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt disney his studio his imagineers in disneyland check out our disneyland podcast archives for my disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of connecting with walt on itunes spotify stitcher google play where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 